0: Why would we sing songs like the one we just did? Come, ye sinners, poor and needy. It's not a pleasant message to give, it's not an encouraging way to address an audience it certainly does not have all the bells and whistles of having a motivational speech come ye sinners poor and needy weak and wound and wounded sick and sore and as if that was not enough I wonder if you picked up on the language in the third stanza. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Why would we sing a song like this before the message to be preached? Because the message that we are looking at this morning answers the question why we would actually dare to sing such songs together when we're gathered. The reason why we are calling one another sinners and why we would call one another to come is because if we don't, there is a wrath to come that is so devastating that leaves us so helpless and hopeless that unless we call each other out, unless we awaken one another and seek to bump each other, helping each other to awaken from the sleeplessness, from the sleeplessness, a reality that we're in because of sin. The wrath of God is why we would dare to sing such songs. So this morning, I invite you to open God's Word to Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. The wrath of God is revealed. Here's God's Word this morning. For our hearts, as we work through the book of Romans together, listen to the sober reality why we're calling one another sinners who need to come to the Savior. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise. They became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images resembling mortal man. And birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore. God. God. Gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word for our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Gracious Father, you have revealed your word to us. And in this word, you reveal to us your wrath to come. It is a sober truth to hear, but we we pray and ask that you would give us heart and minds that are open not to suppress this truth, but to receive it so that we may flee to Christ, the one you have sent for our righteousness. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that Christ would be revealed to us and our need of him would be so drilled in our hearts that we would have no choice but flee to you and ask of you to have mercy on us through Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray and through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit who is among us. Amen. Does it surprise you that a book in the New Testament that is fully devoted to declare the gospel of God would begin talking so quickly about the wrath of God? Some people think that the notion of the wrath of God is only in the Old Testament, that somehow the Old Testament is, is a God that describes the wrath of God, but the New Testament is all about love, the love of God. And here we are in the book of the, o- of the New Testament that so majors on the gospel of God that tells us about the grace of God in Jesus Christ, here we are, barely passing the introduction of this book, and we are immersed so quickly and so powerfully and plainly through the theme of the wrath of God. Why would this topic of the wrath of God come up so early in this book that is so clearly about the gospel of God. When we looked two weeks ago at the, at the first 17 verses of this book, at why we must pay attention to the book of Romans, the, the third point we concluded on two weeks ago was that we must pay attention to this book because of an unashamed confidence in the gospel. Do you remember how verses 16 and 17 uh, wrap up the conclusion of the book? I mean, wrap up the introduction of the book with this unapologetic confidence that the Apostle Paul has in the gospel. Let me just remind us of those words. Verse 16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek but the question is what must be what must we be saved from if the gospel is the power of god for salvation salvation from what from our felt needs from our weaknesses from our misery from our grief from the fact that life is not going the way we want it to go what must be we what must we be saved from our text today answers that question We must be saved from the wrath of God. A wrath that is still yet to come in its full consummation. A wrath that has been revealed in anticipation throughout the history of humanity. Yes, the Old Testament is full of accounts where God has manifested anticipations of his coming wrath. But all the Old Testament accounts of the wrath of God were not only talking about real manifestations of the wrath of God, but also that they are pointers to an ultimate consummation of the coming wrath of God. So in the New Testament, when we get to the New Testament, an entire book, the last book of the New Testament is describing in incredible detail the way in which the wrath of God will ultimately, finally manifest against humanity. You see, it's not merely the Old Testament that speaks about the wrath to come. The New Testament speaks about that as well. When John the Baptist, the one sent by God to, to foretell, to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus, when he was preaching to the crowds at one point, he said, you brood of vipers, who taught you to flee from the wrath to come? Because the New Testament never loses sight of the reality that the wrath of God is a real thing. It has manifested in the past, but all of that has been just foreshadowing and anticipation of the ultimate consummation of His wrath. Now, oh, friends, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not news merely that the righteousness of God has been revealed as verse 17 of Romans 1 tells us. The good news of the gospel is also including the reality that the wrath of God has also been revealed. Both are part of the gospel message. And I wonder if at this point, Christians can still feel, with Paul, an unashamed confidence in the gospel. It's easy to feel an unashamed confidence when the righteousness of God is revealed, as verse 17 told us. But I wonder if we feel the same level of confidence in the gospel when we get to verse 18, where the wrath of God is revealed. And the theme of this text, the doctrine that this passage introduces us to, is a sober doctrine. A sober reality of the coming wrath of God. And this wrath is mentioned again in chapter 2, verse 5, when the Apostle Paul says, but because of your heart, and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This wrath will show up again in the book of Romans, as we will see throughout, throughout this book. But at this point in the book, in the passage we have just read, we are introduced to the reality and the And the theme of the wrath of God. And the message this morning is simply this. The wrath of God is revealed. And the fact that this is part of the gospel message tells us that we should not be ashamed of it. Just as we should not be ashamed of the righteousness of God. We should not be ashamed of the wrath of God. The fact that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven shows us what we truly must be saved from. We must be saved not merely from our sins. Yes, we must be saved from our sins. And the Bible speaks the fact about the fact that Jesus was sent to save God's people from their sins. But that is just one facet of what we must be saved from. The other facet that we must be saved from, actually the the deeper reality that we must be saved from, is also to be saved from the wrath of God. Have you ever considered that we actually must be saved from God himself? In his wrath against sin? Our problem Is that we have a problem with God? Or actually, to be more accurate, our problem is that God has a problem with us. And this is an uncomfortable truth to consider. Yet, it is part of the gospel message. Actually, it is because God is perfectly righteous that he is wrathful against all unrighteousness. If he didn't care about righteousness all that much, he could let unrighteousness go unaddressed. But imagine if you lived in a place where crime was left unaddressed, where violence was let flourish, where corruption was never confronted and brought an end to, when a judge turns a blind eye to those who are guilty, where injustice is allowed to go rampant, what kind of society, what kind of place would that become? If God is perfectly righteous, then he is perfectly going to address all unrighteousness. Friends, it is an amazingly good thing that God is perfectly righteous and that he is wrathful against all unrighteousness. The effect of God's perfect righteousness is that he is wrathful against all unrighteousness. That is a good thing. We must see that God's wrath against unrighteousness flows out of his perfect righteousness. So don't pit these two parts of God against each other. God's righteousness is one side of the same facet of who God is. The other side is his wrath against unrighteousness. These two realities belong to one another. But the uncomfortable truth that this text makes is not merely that God reveals his wrath, but also that mankind is unrighteous through and through. If we look at this text, most of the attention of this text is not on describing the wrath of God. If you want to see that described, read the book of Revelation. But actually what this passage describes most and the attention that this passage gives most to is not so much to the wrath of God but to the unrighteousness of man. So if you struggle with the notion of God's wrath against sin, consider on one side that God's wrath is the other facet of his righteousness. And second, consider that God's wrath against humanity's unrighteousness is fully warranted and certain. That's the point of this text. This text is not describing to us the wrath of God. This text actually is describing to us the unrighteousness of mankind against which the wrath of God will be revealed. The thesis of this text, the main argument of this text, is that the wrath of God against humanity's unrighteousness is fully warranted and certain. And this text will make five claims why the wrath of God against humanity's unrighteousness is fully warranted and certain. Five reasons. This is what we must be convinced of. Not merely of the wrath of God. We must be convinced of our own unrighteousness. Five reasons. Five reasons why God's wrath against our unrighteousness is fully warranted and certain. Reason number one, humanity's unrighteousness is rooted in suppressing the truth. Humanity's unrighteousness is rooted in suppressing the truth. Humanity's unrighteousness is not rooted in ignorance. It is not rooted in our ignorance of the truth about God. Several times throughout this passage, we will see one of the clear descriptions that mankind has known God. It's never because of ignorance. And here at the very first verse of our text, we're actually told that it is because of this oppression of truth that we engage in unrighteousness. Look at verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The truth that mankind suppresses is not just truth in terms of philosophical or abstract truth. It's truth about God, as verse 19 will unfold for us. But here's the important point this verse makes. It's not ignorance of God that causes us to live unrighteously, but the desire to suppress the truth about God. We want to be God in our lives, and we don't want the truth about God to be over us. We want to shove that out, push it out of our lives, out of our thoughts, out of our world, out of our schools, out of our society, out of everything. And we suppress the truth about God not through philosophical debates. You know how we suppress the truth about God? Through unrighteousness. Our acts of unrighteousness are not merely a human choice we make. We're not merely manifestations of of our own independence or our own self defined freedom, when we do what we want to do, we're actually engaging in an unseen conflict between humanity and our Maker and our Creator. Suppressing the truth about God is not done only in public debates or verbal messages of rejection of God. People suppress the truth about God in the daily choices they make when they choose the path of godlessness and unrighteousness. So humanity is guilty in its unrighteousness not simply because it wants its independence but because it wants to suppress the truth about God. But some might say, well, what about the people who have never heard about God? What about the people who have never heard the truth about God? What about the innocent man in Africa? Are such people also suppressing the truth about God? This is a point that Paul addresses in the second point of the message. In verse 19 and 20, humanity is without excuse because of God's general revelation. Humanity is without excuse because of God's general revelation. This is the second point. Look at verse 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has, made it, has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. This verse, or these verses tell us, that there is a general revelation of God through creation. That there are certain truths made plain about God simply by the fact that we see creation around us. This knowledge of God is described by theologians as God's general revelation. It's called general revelation because it doesn't take anyone the need to speak that revelation it can simply be perceived so when we hear what about the people who never heard about god well that there's a wrong assumption in that question because these verses tell us there is a knowledge about god that you don't need to hear about because It's seen all over creation. It's available through the created experience, the created world that we experience. But what can man know about God from this general revelation? That there must be someone who made all this. Creation, this world could not have come into existence on its own. Its beauty, its way too beautiful. Its complex design, its precise and complex laws of nature, the creativity and the ability of mankind to create and design and to appreciate beauty doesn't simply come into existence by two atoms meeting together. There is someone who had to put this together. And the, the amazing variety of species reflected in all this creation is a reflection of an intelligent, powerful, and wise creator. God has left his fingerprints on this creation. So the mere reality that we live in of creation that functions the way it does with such beauty and design should lead every human being to see and to have access to the knowledge of God, even if no one speaks to them a word. It should lead us to know that someone else is in charge, not us that he's powerful and that he's different than us we cannot come up with the f- natural phenomena that happens in this creation we could not bring up the storms the clouds of rain to rain over creation we could not come up with the ecosystem that works such that there's seeds in the ground that sprout and there's water that falls over all creation to water the seeds and bring forth fruit. We could not produce that kind of design. The Apostle Paul appeals to God's general revelation when he preaches about God in the city of Lystra, where the audience wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. And Paul says, Man, don't do this. We are people like you. We're not divine beings. And Paul says in Acts 14, 16, and 17, In past generations, He, God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet He did not leave Himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, even the presence of gladness in our hearts. Even the presence of gladness in the hearts of Gentiles is an evidence that there's a God who created joy and the ability to enjoy Things in this creation. And Paul uses the argument from general revelation to tell the people of Lystra God has not let Himself without witness. Oh, by simply looking at creation, there is enough knowledge of God in this creation to know, to let us know there is a creator. So even the man in Africa who never heard about God still has knowledge of God, enough knowledge of God, enough for what? Verse 20 ends with this sobering conclusion, so they are without excuse. How sobering to hear that this creation and through this creation Every human being, even the man in Africa who never heard about God, has enough knowledge and evidence about God's existence that every single human being is without excuse. This is why it's so ironic when people pit science against God as if the stu- study of, of this creation would prove the non-existence of God. When God actually said, it's a study of this creation that should lead you to know there is someone else. And what you do with that knowledge is up to you. But it's not because science disproves the existence of God. It's rather because of the first reality, the first reason in verse 18... That men suppress the truth. It's not because men don't have access to the truth. It is not because there's not enough truth. It's because men suppress the truth. And now, that was a point number one. And now in point number two, there is enough truth in creation about God. Enough to leave everyone without excuse. Reason number three, why God's wrath against humanity's unrighteousness is warranted. Reason number three, having knowledge about God, men still rebel against him. Having knowledge about God, men still rebel against him. And this we see in verses 21 through 32. For the rest of this text, we're going to see an expose, an explanation, how even though man has enough and sufficient knowledge of God, the issue is we choose to rebel against him. We see this expose in three parts. Three moves in, this, in the remaining of our text. Verses 21 to 24 is the first expose. Verses 25 to 27, we see the second expose. Verse 28 through 31, and then leading to 32, is the last expose. In verses 21 and to 23, we see how humanity rebelled against God. There's a list of verbs here in these verses that describes what humanity has done towards God. And each of these verbs are acted, again, not based on ignorance of God, but they're acted on the knowledge of God despite the knowledge of God. Listen to verse 21. For although they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do you see the path of rebellion? It starts with a choice not to honor God as God nor to show gratitude to him. In making that choice, to ignore God, to withhold honoring him, our thinking becomes affected. It's amazing. The first thing that becomes affected here is our thinking. It becomes futile. And then our hearts become darkened. And the irony is that in this path of rebellion, humanity actually claims to be wise. Self-impression and self-image are quite high on this path. But sadly, our true condition is that we have become the very opposite of wise. We have become fools. And in our foolishness, in our foolish thinking, we have done a terrible exchange. In our thinking, we have actually done a horrible, devastating exchange. We have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the glory. Of images and things of this creation. In other words, we have robbed God of the glory due to his name. Have you ever been robbed? You know the feeling of what it may mean to be taken from you, that which rightly belongs to you. And what happens or should happen to robbers, to those who steal some other people's stuff? They deserve to be punished. Here is an expose of the grand robbery. Mankind had the audacity to rob God of his glory. To take the glory that belongs only to God and to ascribe it and to give it to something else, to this creation, to things of this creation. We want to replace God with someone else. with that which is in this creation. And this is a path of humanity's rebellion. Stopping to honor God, we end up in exchanging His glory for something else. Oh, friends, this is a tragic and foolish exchange of the universe, of humanity, depleting God of that which is rightfully His glory, majesty, dominion. We want to replace God with something else. Well, friends, this is the heart of idolatry. So our rebellion against God results in a change of our thinking and our affections. And here we see the essence of sin. According to the Bible, sin is not merely missing the mark. Oops, I was supposed to mark a a 99.9 or 100, and I only got 95 I only got ninety-two. Oh friend, sin is not missing the mark. Sin is a robbing of God, of the glory due to his name. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin therefore affects our thinking, our hearts. Sin corrupts our self impression. Causes us to be detached from reality. All this is in the very first expose. That even though we have known God, we chose to rebel against Him. In the second expose, we see another set of descriptions. In verse 25, two other descriptions about how humanity rebelled against God. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. The suppression of truth that we were told about in verse 18 is now explained further. It's not merely that we rob God of his glory. We are not happy with the truth about God being proclaimed the way it should be. So we would rather proclaim a lie and stop the truth about God to be truly promoted. So in verse 25, we not only exchange God's glory, we exchange God's truth. And we would rather promote a lie instead of the truth of God. And therefore, we worship and serve, not the, not the creator, but creation, a creature. The suppression of truth about God is what we have preferred and exchange it instead with a lie. And that exchange leads us to idolatry, worshiping and serving ourselves and the elements of this creation. What a horrible exchange to exchange God's glory to exchange God's truth. But there's a third expose. In verses 28 to 31, we see again the description of man's rebellion against God. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And in verses 29 through 31, we see a long list of manifestations of sin. But the root of all these sins is that man chose not to have God in their lives. And they would prefer not to have God in the universe. This is the tragic universal exchange of all humanity that we would choose not even to acknowledge God. So, this text reveals that even though mankind has known about God, it's not ignorance. It's not lack of knowledge. Even though we have knowledge of God, we have not seen fit to acknowledge God as God. I love how one Bible teacher put it this way beautifully. Our rebellion involves the exchange of something good for something bad. And that's what it is. We are replacing God for something in this creation. So what is God's response How does God respond to to what man has done to rob God of his glory and to exchange his truth for a lie and not even to acknowledge him? What is God's response? The same passage that we looked at, verses 21 to 32, shows us that God gave us over to what we asked for and this leads us to the fourth point of the of the message this morning the present corruption is evidence that God's wrath is certain the present corruption is evidence That God's wrath is certain. When humanity has chosen to exchange God's glory and God's truth for the glory of creation and for a lie, God gave us up to what we desired, God gave us what we wanted. God gave us what we asked for. Three times in this passage, we see the phrase, and God gave them up. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. What did God give us up to? Well, if we just read a little bit into it, in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts or in the, in the cravings of their hearts. God gave us up to the cravings of our hearts in those cravings. And society would say, Well, follow your heart. Follow your passions. And God says, Be my guest. I'll let you do it. I am giving you over to what you asked for. Verse 24 Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Oh, friends, this is why following your own heart is no certain guide, and sure guide that you're on the right path. Verse 26, we see a second instance of God giving humanity up. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, Our society tells us, follow your passions, be true to yourself. Friends, when God gives humanity over to dishonorable passions, the effects show up in tragic distortions. And an example of the tragic distortions of being given up to our own passions is in our human sexuality. Look at verses 26 and 27. Unpacking the effects of being given over to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for that, for those that are contrary to nature. And that men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. When, man, when God created mankind, He made us male and female. But when mankind rebelled against God and has become corrupt in our minds and our hearts, the effect of that corruption shows up in the distorted sexual orientations. The presence of these distortions is evidence that God has given up humanity to be ruled by the passions to distort God, to dethrone God. As one Bible teacher put it so clearly and helpfully, these sinful acts are not the cause of God's wrath, but the present evidence for its reality. Homosexuality is named not because it is a greater sin than any other, but because it is the clearest evidence of a rejection of God's order in creation. Verse 28, we see the third time where God has given up mankind. This time, He has given up mankind to a debased mind. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So what did God give us up to? To the cravings or the lusts of our hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of our bodies, and to a debased mind. And sexual sins are not the only evidence of the tragic effects that we have dethroned God over our lives. In verse 29 through 31, we see a long list of sins that are not nearly, we might say, as bad, or at least some of them. Some of these are indeed big sins in our human social eyes, But others seem much smaller. But there's no scale here of which is better or worse. They're all put in the same bag. They are examples of the all kinds of unrighteousness. And the point of this list of sins is that it's a list in which everyone can find themselves. For every one of us has committed, at least at some time, at some point, at least one of them. Listen to the list again. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, to covet, malice, envy, murder, strife. Deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient of parents. We're just pausing here to speak to our children. The simple act of, disobe- of disobeying parents is an evidence that God has given us over, every one of us, to a debased mind. So, parents, when you teach your child that disobedience is a sin and should not be tolerated, it's not just a matter of convenience. You're actually teaching them one of the effects or how to be aware of one of the effects of, how to, of living in a world in which God has given humanity over to all sorts of impurities. And this goes on. Foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. Is there someone here who does not find himself at some point in one of of these sins. The point of the list is to show how universal the spread of of what God has done as a result of what humanity has done to dethrone God. These sins are evidence that God has given everyone over to our distorted passions, to our impure hearts, to our debased minds. Have you ever done a bad deal? Making a purchase that you thought would be really good but turned out to be really bad. Investing in something that you were sure would yield good results but would turn out to be really devastating. In the world of business, people are taught how to make good deals, to make sure that at least you get your money's worth of what you are investing. But here this text tells us that in turning to exchange God for something else, everything about us has been exchanged, has been affected, has been distorted Affections, thinking, everything. And what's worse, we are not able to correct ourselves anymore. Because the corruption has happened at the core of our DNA, if you will, in our hearts. God's wrath is evidenced against all humanity through the manifestation of such a variety of sins. But the source of all this is not the list of the behaviors. That's just the evidence. The root of all this goes back to verse 18, suppressing the truth about God. Rejecting God over us. All the the sins of this chapter are mere manifestations of the bad exchange we all have done. Friends, the root of our sin is not a particular behavior. The root of our sin is the rejection of our Creator. Out of that comes all kinds of unrighteousness. And the manifestation of the present decay of humanity is evidence that God's wrath is certain. How do we know that God's wrath is true? This text would say, look at the corruption around you. Look at the corruption of society around you. Look at everything you see around you. That should be evidence to you that the rebellion, the great exchange has taken place. And God is giving you what you asked for. And if God is giving you what you asked for and you see the evidence of it, be certain that his wrath, which he has announced, will also come. Last reason. Why? God's wrath against humanity's unrighteousness is warranted and certain. Is in verse 32. Humanity remains defiant of God's coming judgment. Humanity remains defiant of God's coming judgment. In the final verse, Paul comes back to the notion that humanity is not ignorant of God, nor of his decree against such unrighteousness. Look at verse 32 though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul now tells us that merely knowing about God's existence does not solve the problem of our human rebellion. Actually, it's worse. Even knowing about the penalty of our rebellion will not solve our rebellion because even the people who know even when they know of God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die it still doesn't change what people will do so what about the innocent man in Africa if he knew what is God's decree it would make no difference That's what this text tells us. That even knowledge of the consequence of our rebellion will not turn our hearts around. Friends, it's ironic that some of the sins mentioned in this list are now declared by our society as manifestations of our freedom. And doing so is increasingly celebrated and approved. We now have a pride month. It's not even a day or a week. It's got to be a month in our calendar. Humanity remains defiant of God's coming judgment. No matter what the warnings are, humanity will boast in our wrongdoing Because that's what debased minds. That's what foolish minds. That's what corrupt hearts do. But again, we should not be surprised. It all started when humanity chose not to honor God as God. If you stop considering him as God over you, you'll end up with none of the warnings mattering anymore. God gives us over to our passions and to our corrupt thinking. No wonder that the warnings of his final wrath will not move the needle of our hearts to turn to him. It's not only that our depravity is universal, our depravity is total. There's not a square inch or an ounce in our being, in our hearts, or in our thinking that has the potential to think rightly about God or about our sin anymore. Our only hope for a change comes not if something happens to us by ourselves or in ourselves. Our only hope for correcting the course is if God intervenes to do another exchange. Because of our initial exchange, all God has to do is to let that exchange run its course. So this affects our evangelism. This affects affects the way we live the Christian life. If we hold to any view our human nature, holding some potential to make a right choice, (laughs) to think rightly even when the gospel is explained clearly, to think that people have the innate ability to make the right choice after hearing the gospel, After such a message, after such a text, we would be fools to think that we have the ability to make the right choice or make the right decision. Our sinfulness is not only universal, but total. And our bondage to our own depravity will not enable any of us to make the right choice because none of us would want to. So we must share the good news about God's salvation, knowing that nothing in our human nature will cause people to respond rightly to God. This is why we need to be confident in the righteousness of God, not in man's choice to think rightly or to make the right decision. When we fight sin in our lives, we fight not merely certain types of behavior that if we just correct well... Oh, friends, know that when we fight sin in our lives, we are fighting an ancient bad exchange that we have done to exchange the glory of God God with our glory. And unless you fight sin by going to the root of the problem to fight back, to relinquish, to give up trying to fight for your glory instead of God's, you're never going to be able to think of fighting sin rightly. So is there any hope for a humanity so corrupted by our own rejection of God? Of course there is. That's why the book of Romans was written. The next time the book of Romans will speak about the wrath of God in a hopeful way. It's got to be in chapter 5, verse 9. That's the first time the book of Romans will speak about the wrath of God in a hopeful way. Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. That's the righteousness of God. To be justified by the blood of Jesus. Much more shall we be saved. By him from the wrath of God. The only hope we have is to hear the news about the righteousness of God manifested for us in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, God responded with another exchange. We have exchanged the glory of God for our own. We have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And all God had to do is for that exchange to run its course. And if nothing would happen, we would all be doomed to the wrath of God that is still yet to come. But God intervened. And brought another exchange. He sent his son to live the perfection we were called to live and forfeited. And he didn't stop there. He died the death that our rebellion deserves. And the guilt and the punishment that were ours he took upon himself. So that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, would be the substitute, the exchange for all those who turn away from their rebellion and trust in Jesus. This is a great exchange that God made for us through his son Jesus, so that all who would hear this news and respond by repentance and faith would be saved by him from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed in the gospel so that we would consider, pay attention, and respond to the Lord before it's too late. That we would respond to the righteousness of God by faith. So let me ask you, have you responded to the righteousness of God who is given to us, who can be yours by faith? The greatest exchange that God has done because we have exchanged his glory and his truth, how merciful of him to give us his son. How foolish of us and how pitiful and foolish of you and I to hear this news and still think that you don't need it, that you're wise enough without it, that you'll be safe enough in that last day. If you still continue in that way, if you think you're wise, there's nothing for you left but to enjoy the ride. Today you have heard the news that God in His mercy and grace would call foolish people to turn back to Him. Would you come to Him? And if, if you have, would you walk in the righteousness of God by faith? Let's pray.